Here we are today in the third week of a series asking some of the most fundamental objections, or trying to answer rather, the most fundamental objections that people have to the Christian faith. And we considered uh, on the first week, why is there suffering if God is real? Jamie asked us last week and we explored together, aren't we better off without Christianity? And this week we come to another important question that maybe you've asked or the people you know have asked and our society is certainly asking. How can you say that there is one true faith? How can you make that claim? And this is a really important question. It essentially asks, how does anyone have an exclusive claim on the truth? How can you solely say that you have access to God? Now, note the question assumes the existence of God, but in its objection to the Christian faith, and frankly many other religions, it's so relevant. As has just been said, we've just started an Alpha course, and the Alpha course is a chance to explore the Christian claims. We had week two last week, and in my group, we had a great old discussion, and I think the central bit of it was, how can you make this claim? How can you sort of outclaim everyone else? How can Christians say that they have the truth? So it's really important that we explore it together. I hope this is helpful for you personally, and also maybe for those that you meet and talk to. I hope this equips you. Maybe the first thing we need to do together is answer the question, do Christians say that there is only one true faith? Or to use the framework of the New Testament, is Jesus the only way to God? And the answer emphatically is yes. That is exactly what Christians say. We see see this claim all across the New Testament, but we see it best, I think, in the words of Jesus himself. What does he say? He's answering Thomas. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's interesting, sometimes when you're, you know, you've prepared a passage and, and then even as it's being read out again, things jump out to you. Verse 5, you could read with me in your Bible. Thomas asked the universal question. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where we're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, it's right here. It's me. I am the way and the truth and the life. So Christians do say that there is only one true faith because Jesus himself said so. He said there's only one way to know God and it's through me alone. Now, we might say, well, Tim, that's exactly the exclusive problem that we have. Isn't that the problem that the question is trying to address? Isn't that exactly it? Well, I'm not actually done yet. It sort of gets worse from our perspective because Jesus continues. He says, not just that I'm the way, the truth and the life, but you need to respond to me. Verse 7, he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the way to God, but you need to see that truth, and you need to see me for who I am. You need to have faith, in other words. You need to see that I am God. And this really comes out in what Jesus says to Philip. Um, Because Jesus says, if you know who I am, then you know who God is. But Philip, he just doesn't get it. I was encouraged by the disciples because I relate to them. They just don't get it. And what he says sounds really pious. It sounds really humble. He says in verse 8, read with me, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Philip, you idiot. No, he didn't say that. He says, what do you think I've been doing all this time? Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? It's don't you get it? Don't you see? Are you ready for Jesus' big claim? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe? 
that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me. Jesus says to see me is to see our Father God. If you know me, you know him. And the way we see Jesus, the way we recognize who he is, is as we believe in him, as we believe that he is the Son of God. And that's actually an act of obedience. Jesus said, believe me when I say. That's how we see God. We, trust, we put our trust in him. We believe Jesus and what he, said he, what he said he was. We come to God by believing in Jesus. Now, maybe even if you're a Christian here today, you're thinking, wow, when you put it like that, it really is exclusive, isn't it? And it is. That is, that is an exclusive claim. Jesus is the only way. Every one of us needs to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord to be saved. There is no name under heaven and earth by which we are saved. Christianity is exclusive. Do Christians say there's only one true faith? Yes. Yes, they do. But there's a way of thinking about that that misses the wonder of God's amazing, radical, inclusive grace. Because even though Christianity is exclusive, and let's, let's not try and pretend it isn't, it is also incredibly inclusive. It's right here in the passage. Did you notice in verse 9? Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone. Just notice, I've highlighted it. Earlier in the passage, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive. But then he goes on, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Christianity is exclusive, yes, but it is also radically inclusive. God loves and died for the best and the worst of us. I have a friend who recently started working in a prison, and he'd never done anything like this before, but he's a musician, and he's been giving music lessons to the inmates. And he's met all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life. And even though the prisoners sort of basically aren't meant to, often they'll share with him why they are there. And my friend hasn't told me what they've done, but he's shared that experience and the impact it's had on him. And I think what I, when he told me that story, I realized how much of a sheltered little bubble I live in, in terms of the people I know, who basically I would probably consider to be good people and who probably think of themselves as good people. But as Jesus told his disciples, and as he tells us today, God's love really is inclusive. Let us apply this in a way that might make us feel uncomfortable. God loves and died for paedophiles. God has made a way for sex offenders and murderers and rapists and dictators to know him because he loves them. And he longs that they would know him. And he loves them just as much as anyone else. There is no one beyond the love of God. There is no one that Jesus did not die for. No matter how good or bad they might have been. And anyone has the chance to believe in God. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But we might not like this idea of belief. We might think, oh, that's still too exclusive. Surely it's about being good. Surely it's about our good works, being a good person. Surely that helps us find God and know him. One of the things people always bring up on Alpha, we're doing week three this week, and I can't wait to hear it and talk about it, because we always do is, you mean to tell me that someone on their deathbed could just give their life to God, just say sorry, and just like that, even though they've lived a whole life doing their own thing, God would forgive them. Yes. 
And that's problematic because we always think, surely we bring something to the table. Surely it's about the good that we do. Surely it must be about being a good person. And that sounds inclusive. But let me show you how it's just as exclusive. Because if it's not just Christians who believe are saved, but people who are good, that means the good people are in and the bad people are out. There is no hope, therefore, for the, friend, for the people that my friend works with in the prison. Because they haven't lived a good life, quite clearly. It's just as exclusive when you make it about good works. It has to be by faith. And frankly, that's because if it was by good works, we would all be excluded. If it was by the good things we do, none of us would make it. None of us live up to the standard of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the universal um, religion of humanity, I think. Our kind of basic instinct to say, basically, we develop a good record, we give it to God, and then he owes us. And the Christian gospel says the exact opposite. It says God develops a good record and gives it to us, and we owe him. And it's received by believing. And that's amazing, because that means there is hope for anybody That means there really is hope for anybody to see Jesus as Lord. Because God doesn't exclude any of us based on anything we've done. But he just asks us simply, do you trust me? Do you believe me when I say I am who I am? It doesn't matter if you've literally been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and loved and embraced fully and instantly through Jesus Christ. Amen? Anyone who has seen me, said Jesus, has seen the Father I am the way and the truth and the life. Now it's important to understand this grace, isn't it? It's important to understand the grace of God that is a free gift to us, meaning he saves us on the basis of his goodness and not ours. Because otherwise, if you start talking about exclusive truth, couldn't that lead to you being very arrogant? You know, if you start thinking, well, I'm right and you're wrong, surely that is a position that does not lead to the kind of love that Jesus has called us to. And I would say, you're right. But the degree to which you see yourself as superior and better than anyone else is the degree to which you have misunderstood the heart of the gospel. Christians can only become intolerant to the degree they misunderstand God's love for them. Because we're not saved by our right beliefs and our good behavior. We're saved by what God has done. And that message, when we get it, it can't lead to arrogance or coercion or intolerance. The gospel is that I am so deeply flawed that God had to die for me. But I am so deeply loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. And when we start to understand that, it leads to this both amazing humility and deep confidence. There's no room for swaggering and there's no room for sniveling. I can't feel superior to anyone else because I'm saved by grace. But I do not think of myself less. I just think of myself less. The gospel, when it's rightly grasped, it leaves us no place for any arrogance or thinking that we have it right and everyone else has it wrong or thinking that we are better than anyone else. Instead, it is a place of humility that allows us to love people as Jesus loved them. It's up to us to prove it with our lives, to prove that truth. So Jesus himself, and not just Christianity, is exclusive. But it's the most inclusive exclusivity there can possibly be. But let's be frank, people don't like exclusive claims, do they? It confronts us that Jesus doesn't say, I'm a truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm not one of many truths. 
I'm it. Thomas, how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I think one of the, the sort of common objections that we might, we might have this, people we know might have this, is surely all religions express some part of the truth of God. Surely they kind of see it in part. You know, all roads lead to Rome. Everyone's kind of got a bit of the truth. No one can say that they've got it all. And this is explained in an illustration. It's quite a fun one about a group of blind men and an elephant. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you've heard it before. It's great. And it goes like this. That basically there's a group of blind men who come upon an elephant or stumble into it, whatever you want to make of it. And one grabs hold of the trunk because what they start to do is explain what the elephant is like. And one grabs hold of the trunk and said, elephants are long and flexible creatures. And the other says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Elephants, as he grabs hold of the leg, are short and thick and stubby. And then there's one who's touching the side of it going, no, you've got it wrong still. Elephants are big and flat. And as you understand the illustration, you understand that they are partly right and that they are partly wrong. They all see part of the reality of the elephant, but no one can see the whole picture. And so the illustration concludes, all religions are the same. All religions are like the blind man. Nobody can see the whole truth. They can only see in part. And that sounds good. You know, that sounds inclusive, doesn't it? But it's quite problematic. Firstly, because... If you actually look at what the world religions claim, they claim incredibly different things. Buddhism claims that there is no God. How different does that sound to, say, Islam or Judaism? But it's problematic more, I think, because although it sounds inclusive, let me show you how just as exclusive that idea is. If you say that all religions see part of God, that is a very exclusive claim. And the person who pointed out was this man called Leslie Newbigin, And he was a British missionary to India for many years. And he was someone, he said that, he writes a book about it, he he was saying, people would give him this illustration all the time and they would tell him, don't all religions kind of see part of the truth? And what he realized one day was that the only way you could know that none of the religions, no peoples had the whole truth, was if you assumed that you did. As in, you could only understand that there were blind men touching part of an elephant if you thought somehow you saw the whole elephant. The viewpoint implies that you have sight and somehow everyone else is blind because you alone can see what no one else does. Do you follow? As we think about faith, the idea is that the only way you can say that only every religion sees part of God is if you assume you see the whole truth, if you somehow see the whole picture, which is the very thing you say that no one does. So we have to ask anybody that says all religions are like the blind man, they all see in part and they don't see the whole reality. We have to ask, what vantage point do you suddenly have that means you're able to relativize all the claims that everybody makes? The point is here, we all have exclusive spiritual and religious beliefs. Because when you say that no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, that is a superior take on spiritual reality that you're saying no one else does. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that they're all equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. So it's just as exclusive to say that all perspectives are right as to say that one is. But we must ask ourselves, what is the basis? How can Christians make that claim? What is the basis of our claim? What's the foundation of it? 
Well, it's the simplest way to summarize that, is that it's all found in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the Sunday school answer. You know, how can you say there's only one true faith? Jesus. But let's explore what I mean by that. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. To see me is to see the Father. The Father was doing his work in him. And that meant a few different things. This means that we can say that there's one true faith because Jesus was uniquely the Son of God. Verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father in me. The Father is in me. In other words, I am God in the flesh. In every other religion, if there is some kind of figurehead, if there is some kind of person, what they always do is they point away from themselves and they say, God is over here. I'm just a conduit. I'm just pointing you to them. Don't look at me. It's all about God or Nirvana or whatever the system is, whatever you're pointing people towards. But Jesus and the heart of Christianity does the exact opposite because Jesus points at himself. He says, I am God. God is here. He's walking amongst you. It's me. I am him. The Father is in me and I'm in the Father. And this is important because it speaks into that analogy of the blind man and the elephant. Because what Christian says, even though we're all blind... The elephant has spoken. God's like an elephant. No, he's not. And don't start tweeting that, that the curate at HEC got it wrong. But it's like Christians have an answer. Just go back to verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where we are going, so how can we know the way? And that's really interesting to me. It only struck me during the worship as I was reading this. That sounds like the blind man. But Jesus has the answer. Jesus says, it's me. The elephant has spoken back, as it were. God has revealed himself. And this means that we don't find God by blindly searching in the dark. He said, in the dark, God has broken in and revealed himself to us. He hasn't left us to guess what he is like. God has come in Jesus. Jesus was the unique son of God. There was no one like him. And the thing is, if God speaks, if God says, yeah, this is who I am, then it actually places, it's the standard by which we judge all other religious claims. So Jesus was the unique son of God, but he was also the unique saviour. This is how we can say there's one true faith. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the way. And we know that Jesus has uniquely made a way for us to know God. In the prison of our sin, we are separate from God. On our own, we do not walk with him, we do not know him. But Jesus has come to die in our place and take our sin upon himself, upon the cross. This is why Christians claim an exclusive truth. Because we believe that he was uniquely able to bridge the gap, bridge the division, bridge the thing that separated us from God, which was sin. All because of who he was and what he did. Jesus said, I'm the way. I make a way. He saves us from our guilt. He saves us from the addictive power of sin. He saves us from the judgment that God is going to bring upon us all. And finally, and I think this is the big one, why can we say that there's one true faith? It's because Jesus was uniquely raised to life. Christians don't just say there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago. We say that Jesus is now alive. He was raised to life. He was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ is alive today. And this is it. This is kind of what it all rests upon. How can you say there's one true faith? It's because we know that Jesus Christ was brought back to life And he's seated with God. He was uniquely resurrected. No other religion even comes close to claiming this. And this is so important for us to grasp. Not just when we become a Christian, but actually throughout our whole Christian walk. The basis of our faith 
is not our experience. The basis of our faith is not what we think we experience about God. But I often think that's what people kind of think it is. And that's why I think people think they can't disagree with you. Well, you've had that experience. Who am I to say that you're wrong if you've had a certain experience of God? Now, don't mishear me. I totally believe that we can experience God today. Jesus is alive. He sent his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We can know the power of God. We can know the presence of God. We can see the miraculous. We can see the dead raised. We can see people healed. God is alive and at works today. We can experience him. But the foundation of our faith is not that. That's not what we put our whole lives on. You know, I've had some, I think, experiences of God. I guess you can call them religious experiences. I believe God has spoken to me, which makes me sound nuts. I was having this conversation with someone I met the other day, and I was like, I think God has actually spoken to me. And the reason I thought that was because uh, I had some information about someone that I was able to ask. It's called a word of knowledge in biblical terms. You know, and it was actually turned out that it was correct. I, was, I think God revealed that this guy had a, a daughter who had gone away from the Lord, to use the biblical language, that she was prodigal, and that his heart was burdened for her. And I said this to him, and he said, yes. Wow, yes, my eldest daughter, Anna. And we prayed for her. But the basis of my faith is not any experience I have. And the basis of your faith is not what God may or may not have done for you in your life that you've experienced now. The basis of your faith is what God has done in history. Jesus Christ was raised on a particular day at a particular time in a place in Jerusalem. There was a dead body, and at one point it began to breathe as Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was raised. And that's the basis, because it's not just your experience, it's my experience. It's the basis upon which all our faith can rest. And this is why we can claim a unique truth. It's because we believe God has done something in history, and we put our trust in that. We don't put our trust in our own experiences, and our own sense of God's closeness and nearness and presence. Because guess what? That will come and go. Some of you are here today, and you're feeling that God is far from me. Tim, I am not experiencing his fullness of joy Faith feels hard. I feel like I'm still stumbling in the dark. I feel like that man in the Bible who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And if you make the basis of your faith, your experience, and what you've had happen to you, that will let you down. Because life will be good sometimes. And then life will be bad. And you'll find that it's a shifting foundation that you can't put your weight on. But you can put your whole life upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can put all of your weight upon that truth. You can put everything you are, you can put your hopes, your dreams, your life, your future, your past, your present, and say, God, I trust in what you have done. And the wonderful thing about that is that we can all do that. The whole world can do that because God has done something in history. And we can look to that and say, God, we know what you are like. We know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We know that you're in the Father, that he was in you, that he was doing his work in you because of what you've done, because you've uniquely revealed God. Jesus is the unique son of God. He's the unique savior. He uniquely reveals God. And from that place, we can say humbly that Jesus is the only way to the Father. How can you say that there's only one true faith? It's because Jesus said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But anybody who's seen me has seen the Father. How should we respond to this message today? How should we respond to what Jesus says to us? Well, if you are here and you're looking in on the things of faith and you wouldn't call yourself yet a Christian, can I encourage you to explore it? With everything I've got, can I encourage you? And I believe you'll find it to be a credible, credible claim 
Even the fact of the resurrection, I believe you can find evidence for. Can I encourage you, if you are a Christian, give your whole life to telling people about Jesus Christ. Give everything you have with your life and your lips. Make your whole life, the purpose of your whole life, the proclamation of the love of God in Jesus. Give it all. Give everything you have to that. Nothing else is worth it. You were made to know God and love him. And now God has said, I want you, I've sent you to go and tell others about him. Give everything you have to that. Trusting in the power of God. Trusting that he'll use you in your weakness and in your ignorance and in your lack of faith. But for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, can I encourage you to put your whole life upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Put your whole trust in him. Don't hold anything back. Maybe today you need to say again, God, I do believe, but it feels so shaky today. I don't feel like I've got it all. Tim's talking about this big faith, about this big God who's done this big thing, and I feel so small. My faith feels so small. But let me encourage you, you are not saved by how much you believe it and how well you believe it. You're saved by who you believe in. You're saved by him, not by you. You're saved by him. And that's a message of hope that we can carry throughout our whole walk with God. Where one day we're going to get before him and say, God, my King and my Lord, you're still the way, the truth and the life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, where our faith is shaky today, we say that we trust in you and what you've done. God, we just confess that so often we put our trust in ourselves, even if we don't realize we do it. So often, God, we've put our trust in our experiences and the good things in our life. But we say today that we want to trust in you and what you've done. So, Lord, we're asking for your help, just as we need to do when we first come to you. We need to say help. And we ask today that by your grace, you'd reveal Jesus Christ to us. You'd help us trust him. And you'd even help us proclaim him and serve him and serve others. Amen. Let's stand together.